0: tonight about some very important characters that bring us from the medieval Catholic Church to the Reformed Church that we really are planted in and and grounded in today. And so it begins with a man named John Wycliffe, and uh, he was the first guy to uh, translate the Bible into English. He lived from 1329 to 1384. And, you know, this is a, a time where Church doctrine is pretty much government. The church and the government are the same. And you cannot oppose the government. You cannot oppose the church. And to do so is heresy. Heresy is punished with death. And that's the end of it. And so the Bible is now being preached in England in Latin. How many people speak Latin in England? Uh, Only a handful of very educated people um, can speak Latin. So the common person, the, the person who has not attended college and college was really only reserved for the upper classes it, it took a lot of money and in those days uh, times were, were quite quite difficult it was just an agrarian society and where you have kings and you have peasants and it, it looks like that and you have a very small if any middle class so you have the kings you have the peasants majority of people are peasants they're not going to college they're not hearing latin they have no access to the bible you also don't have the printing press in those days. And so if somebody was going to get a Bible, somebody else had to write one and hand you one. And again, they would copy it from Latin and hand you one in Latin, which was probably illegal, or only, you know, only possible with you know, the church could only authorize something like that. So John Wycliffe is an important person because he translates the Bible into English. It was about uh, 1380 that uh, they translated the, the New Testament from Latin into english he did not have much access to earlier versions of the bible but he worked primarily off the latin translation also after he finished his translation work he organizes a group of poor parishioners known as the lollards to go throughout england preaching christian truths and reading the scriptures in english to the people the lollards l-o-l-l-a-r-d-s and they would rely only on handouts for their subsistence he was a created quite a stir in England. I believe he was martyred for it. The Lollards were brutally suppressed by later uh, groups, later kings, and so that movement died out. So he lived from 1329 to 1384, translated the Bible from Latin into English, and organized a group called the Lollards to go around England preaching the Bible in English. Of course, this uh, doesn't help. So when he does this, you come directly against sort of this church state structure that says, wait a second, you're undermining our authority. You're making us uncomfortable. You're a troublemaker. We got to deal with you. So the church was a mess in those days. Now, when, when an English king married a Bohemian noble, Wycliffe's writings then come into Bohemia, and a man named Jan Hus is becomes familiar with Wycliffe's writings. Richard II married Anne of Bohemia in 1382. How many of you knew that? Anne of Bohemia in 1382, Wycliffe's ideas were introduced in, into Bohemian theological and philosophical th- circles. Consequently, Jan Hus began to read and study the English reformer's works. He becomes a, a priest, in, or was ordained to the priesthood in 1400, and begins just sort of working up through the Catholic hierarchy. But he, all the while, he keeps reading Wycliffe, and he keeps reading Wycliffe, and he's just a faithful Catholic just going through the, the Catholic Church, but he keeps reading uh, Wycliffe, and he starts to see the great abuses going on in the Catholic system. And so Hus, Huss' preaching just starts to become more and more popular, and he becomes a very popular per- person in, in Prague. This at the time was called Bohemia, it would, today it's called Czechoslovakia, but Hus becomes a very prominent person at this time and he begins to condemn clerical abuses and he begins to condemn you know, leaders who are abusing their privileges. So he begins to make some enemies. He's largely a, a champion of the Word of God and because he is attacking the abuses of his time, he makes a ton of enemies, and eventually he is excommunicated, tried, and because of his association with Wycliffe, who was the worst name in town in those days in Catholic hierarchy, he loses in in his trial and he's burned at the stake. So you see that Reformation is trying to get going, but there's just a very powerful Catholic church that is just quashing it every time that it tries to get going. There's a fascinating figure that pops up in the mid-1400s or late 1400s, Savonarola. This guy just fascinates me because he preaches in Florence like, a, oh, like an Old Testament prophet. He's talking about doom, and, and Florence at the time was, a, was in the middle of the Renaissance. So the Medici family is running Florence, and Florence is just a mess in terms ethically. Ethically and morally it's just it's a mess there's this religious overlay, but there's this tremendous hypocrisy going on in Florence it 's very religious on the surface, but underneath its it's totally uh, corrupt and decrepit and the worst are the leaders the the Medici family and and others who are the leaders of Florence are the worst ones. Savonarola becomes this, becomes a preacher, and it's interesting he was um, bound for for secular work, but he um, has this powerful conversion. The young man left home secretly at 23 without parental approval. Flinging aside years of medical and philosophical education, he joined the Dominican friars. Convinced of the reality of the afterlife, with its dismal gloom or glorious salvation, he became very serious. An urgent sense of right drove him to denounce morals of the day. At first, his messages were way too scholarly for the masses, but in time, they gained power. Audiences pressed into chapel to hear him utter dark prophecies of the future of Italy and Florence. And so it's fascinating what happened with this man. He preaches a total revival in the city of Florence, and he just preaches you know, doom and gloom if you don't repent. We've got to repent right now, otherwise we're just uh, we're, we're, we've had it. At the time, the king of France was very very powerful and France was stronger than Italy and France was knocking right on the doors and France could, was, was thinking was France going to come over and just take over and kill everybody and so it's very very apocalyptic times at, during at that time people were living in fear and were, was the whole city gonna just be burned down by the French you, know, you have to think about the the mindset of the people at the time are we just going to all be killed when the when the king of France takes over or should we repent and as the bible talks about you know if we would repent god will take up for us and we'll, we'll be spared there's a popular book out now called bonfire of the vanities which is based on what happened here as he preached he basically preaches a full-on revival where everybody just takes all of their all of their art which had become have you noticed that renaissance art everybody's nude and it's just all these fat people naked and so <laughs> well. You know, he's preaching against that. You know, you, you don't want to have a lot of fat people naked on your walls, and and so, so. But it was it was going towards that way, and I mean, that was basically the porn of its day, and he was preaching against it, and it made him very unpopular with certain people and very popular with others, and it was very very heated, this whole dialogue. He had this this day where you were going to. Um, destroy all these vanities, all all this, all the evil books, all this, all this other, all the evil paintings and things like that, and they took them to the town square, and there was this great fire. It was a, there was just so much zeal that he had um, uh, interjected into the people. Well, this is good, but then it goes too far. The guy was just totally prophetic and just really, really on fire, and he just, he takes it too far, and so then in Florence, there were these you know, sort of morals cops that were going around and going from house to house and just taking, you know, people were playing dice and they would grab the dice and they were, people were doing this and, and other little things. And they were going through from house to house doing all of this. And so the, the Pope, who's being cr- totally criticized by this guy, is, is very intelligent you know, and, and he understands power and he understands how you can get it and how you can lose it. And so he just buys his time and he just waits till his fuse runs out so this, this little revival that takes place, or actually a great revival that takes place in Florence, runs full circle and goes over too far to where now the, these morals cops who are running into everybody's homes make Savonarola uh, hated uh, largely by the people. So the people start to kind of, at first they loved him, and now after too much of him, they start to hate the guy. And so um, it, it just it went over the top. It went on through where moderation could have possibly held it. And so now the Pope sees sees his opportunity and begins to start moving against him and eventually Savonarola is burned at the stake and there was a great crowd in the city at at the time that he he was martyred. Legend is that after he was completely burned that there was this tremendous crowd in the in the town square and his burned body all of a sudden the, the arm flings up like this. And the whole crowd just takes off running and several people, several people were trampled to death. That his arm flung up at, after his burned body was, was there. Wow. <laughs> so this is, this is sort of the life and times of the Renaissance. And what you have here is you have these incredibly corrupt Italian leadership and, and, and papal leadership the top of the church hierarchy is, is a mess. Now, d- what they're doing is that they keep wanting to build more and more. And at the time, this is when St. Peter's Cathedral is, uh, is being built in Rome. And if, if anybody's ever been through Europe or, or studied art, it is the crowning achievement of the Renaissance. And it, st- it was started in the 1100s. It wasn't completed until about 1500. It's just a tremendous, tremendous uh, work. And the art in it is the finest art that could possibly be created in its day. Michelangelo, Da Vinci, all of these, the, just the greatest artists are all represented there. That's not cheap, is it? I mean, if you want to build the greatest building in the world, it's gonna take some funds. And so, what was the primary fundraising vehicle of the church, the sale of indulgences. Why do you need an indulgence? To get out of another strange thing, purgatory. So, for all those who did not quite get into heaven, there's purgatory. And purgatory is this fabled place that it doesn't exist, and I've explained that before, but in order to get people out of purgatory, you can buy their way out, and this is a mess. And so it was during Huss's day, a papal group came to Prague because they were trying to raise an army to fight against an, another city-state. And what they said was that if you'll fight in our Vatican army, you will receive a, an eternal indulgence so that you won't have to go to purgatory. So, you know, I mean, it doesn't sound a lot like you know Islam. If you die as a martyr in battle, you go straight to straight to heaven with a thousand virgins as your entourage and stuff like this. It's just goofy. And so this is the same stuff that is happening in those days. And it's just nuts. And so Huss spoke out against it. Eventually, Martin Luther, Martin Luther's 95 theses that he hammered on the Wittenberg door, they were in direct response to the sale of indulgences. At the time when Martin Luther was a uh, priest, in his congregation, he's hearing confessions and he's very concerned about, the, about how his people are doing. They're not coming to confession anymore. Why aren't his people coming to confession anymore? Because they, they, they went over to the next town over where indulgences were being sold like hotcakes, and you could buy your way out of all these problems. You didn't have to go to confession. You could buy a whole bunch of things that would keep you safe for like the next year. You, buy, you could buy a whole bunch of tickets, it was like Disneyland. <laughs> You could do this instead of going to confession. You didn't have to go to church. I mean, what a deal. So Luther is is hearing about this, and he's just, this is nuts. This is crazy. And some people make a a little bit of uh, the fact that Luther was Augustinian, and the monks that were selling this were Dominicans. And so there's a little bit of rivalry, home team versus the away team or something like that. But a man named John Tetzel was the primary salesman of these indulgences, and it's also the the bankers and kings of Germany were splitting the take with the Pope. Uh, so they, you know, they're they're pushing it. Everybody's in on this, and it's just heresy. It's just nuts. And so Luther presents his ninety-five theses on the Wittenberg door, which was kind of a a place to. It was something like a, a bulletin board of its day, and Luther puts his. Uh, 95 arguments about this on the door and he also circulates with with some of his peers well this is about the time that that printing presses are are getting going his stuff is starting to get copied and spread around and this is one of the great reasons why why Luther's work began to flourish where Huss was chopped down Savonarola was chopped down Wycliffe was chopped down but Luther is in a very different day. And there's a lot of transition going on. There's a lot of change going on. And so Luther's ideas spread much faster in that time because of technology starting to increase. His ideas spread further, and he starts to enjoy the protection of, of local officials who were also sort of disenfranchised with papal power. And so there is a growing German nationalism that is sort of at odds with the papacy and, and its control. There's this sort of, there's this rise of, of, of nationalism that's taking place in England, it's taking place in Germany, and they're, they're starting to reject this foreign control. You know, we're going to do things our way. We don't want you to tell us how to do it. Now, Luther w- didn't see himself as pulling out of the church. He wanted to change the church. He wanted to, let's, let's correct the error he wanted to stay within the church and correct the error. And one time I had a prayer time and I felt like the Lord said to me, I would rather have a saint than a schism. And let me explain what that what I felt like he meant there. As I would rather have a martyr. I'd rather have you die than split the church. In other words, advocate for advocate for reform and change, but don't tear don't tear the church. Don't tear the church in half. You know, go ahead and take your punishment and take your beating. Don't split the body. Don't split the body. I feel like God was just saying that it's, it's very important not to tear at things. Try to change things as best you can. Work for change. There are things where there are, you might see something that says, is, this isn't right, this isn't right. And you steadfastly, using time, using the power of God, using prayer, you work for, you advocate change. But you don't tear what's there apart. And so and, and that was Luther's uh, original intent. But what happened was the church came against him so hard and so strong and Luther's tendency, Luther is a, is a hothead. His personality is just very volatile. Martin Luther should not be swallowed whole. In other words you, you, you think Luther was a great reformer but he was also kind of a jerk. During the Peasants' Revolt during his day, uh, he said, Doc, "Crush them, just crush them, you know, wipe them out." He's there's very uh, large writings of his that were just uh, very anti-Semitic. Uh, he was very, very much against the Jews, and uh, and and in that day, it was sort of like if you're a heretic, you know, off with your head. And he's like, "I'm not a heretic. I'm advocating for the Scriptures and stuff like that. But well, you know, here are these Jews that are denying Christ. So, I mean, I mean, here you you know, the Pope is trying to to kill me? Well, I, I believe in Jesus. Look at the Jews. They're not accepting Christ. Luther really laid down some of the foundation that Hitler built on, because Hitler could use the great German love for Luther and just quote directly from Martin Luther and use that to, to further his, his end. So, so, Luther was a, a you know, kind of a, an interesting figure. He's um, a tremendous reformer and a tremendous thinker and a very bold person. But at the, time, at the same time, he, he was a hothead, and, and because of, he, he, just, he would just write out of his passion, say all kinds of things. So the turning point in his life is that he is uh, called to this big convention called the Diet of Worms. <laughs> diet just means a meeting, and Worms was a city. <laughs> so <laughs> the meetings at a city of worms. But I mean, the, the, the words don't translate in English very well at all. <laughs> okay, so, at the Diet of Worms. Well, what happens is that, is that Luther is just out debating every Catholic theologian that comes his way because they all just preach the party line of indulgences and purgatory and, uh, and all this stuff. And he's like, justification by faith. You know, here's Romans. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And one legend, it's not necessarily... A, we don't know that it's a fact, but was that when he was a monk, he went to Rome and as, a, as part of his um, pilgrimage, and he's crawling up the stairs on his knees. You, you had to pray up the stairs, on your knees. You don't walk up the stairs, but you go from knee to knee, up these stairs. and it hits him, "Wait a second. What am I doing? The just shall live by faith. This isn't getting me anything." He was raised in, in one of the most strict orders one of the most strictest monastic orders, and so was his education. Everything about his whole upbringing was horribly strict. He's rebelling against this when he starts reading Galatians and Ephesians and Romans and reading about faith. The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And, And that was his great revelation. The just shall live by faith. It's not by works. And that was the great turning point. That was his great contribution to church history. Not by works, not by works, not by works. You're not going to buy your way out of purgatory. You're not going to buy your way out of hell. It's, it's salvation, solo fide. Yeah, a lot of the arguments were in, in Latin. And he said, by faith alone, solo fide, by faith alone. So he's summoned to this m- great meeting at the, this Diet of Worms. He's got this one king that really likes him called the Frederick the Wise. Elector of Saxony. How would you like to have that title? <laughs> Frederick the yeah. Wise, Elector of Saxony. So Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony, likes Luther. So Luther goes to this, this place and there, there's a famous a statement that he makes. And what happens is that, okay, so Luther has beaten all of these other guys in, in debates. So the Catholics find their sharpest guy, a guy named Eck, Eck. <laughs> and so, again, another word that doesn't translate well into English. Huss has been burned at the stake. And Eck starts reading a lot of statements by Huss and says, You agree with these, don't you? These are your statements. You basically agree with Huss. Aren't you completely in the camp with Huss? And basically forces Luther, very articulate debate, over to say that, Yeah, I guess I do totally agree with Jan Huss. Wow. I kind of wish I hadn't said that, but that's exactly where I am. Those are my beliefs. Here I, here I am. I can do no other. God help me. And so Eck maneuvers him over there. You know, they get their, their, their sharpest attorney. They map out their strategy, and they say, well, we burned Huss. And if he's exactly in Huss's camp, well, down he goes. And so they kind of, aren't you right there? Yeah, I guess I am, because he's a hothead, and he'll answer real fast. And. Boom, they set him up and they they put him right there. And so, he says, unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. And with that, that's how he answers. The, this High Court. While they're deciding exactly what they're going to do to him, he's on his way home, and Frederick the Wise, Elector of Saxony, has him kidnapped, which they kind of had arranged ahead of time. Has him kidnapped so that all of a sudden he disappears. And so now they can't kill him, because they can't find him, and you know maybe he is already dead, and because they just totally remove him from the scene and from the limelight, They kind of hope that some of this reformation and all this turmoil will kind of go away. And they hide him at a place called Wartburg, in a castle in Wartburg. And so he hides there for about a year. And during that time, he translates the Bible into German. It is said that he translated the entire New Testament in um, 11 weeks in the fall and it's, they, they even call it the September Testament or something like that because he, he basically d- did it in, during September of, of a certain year. It's very interesting that while he's, um, he's in Wartburg during 1521 and 1522, that Luther writes very candidly about being attacked by the devil. And it's interesting you know, to have somebody who we just see as such a, an important historical figure talk in very spiritual terms. And he, he talks about how, just demonic attacks kept coming to him and on a regular basis and he had to stand and fight and pray and quote scriptures against the devil repeatedly. If Luther had to, if Jesus had to, (laughs) you got to. And it's it's real. There is a devil. There are demons and you're going to deal with them and you're going to deal with them the same way Jesus did. You're going to quote the word. You're going to quote the word. You're going to quote the word and you're going to stand and you're going to fight. Other people who uh, write very candidly about these sort of things is St. Francis of Assisi. He actually claims that he was lifted off the ground a number of times. And there's a, there's a famous uh, place in, in, in the Wartburg Castle where Luther studied where it said that during the night the devil appeared to him and he grabbed his inkwell and threw it at the devil. Did you see the stain on the wall? Okay, so that stain is on the wall still there today. They say that it might have been touched up a time or two it's still there, a famous landmark. Luther then returns from Wartburg and comes back to join the Reformation and he moderates against uh, Karlstadt and and others who are taking it too far and and he, he moderates, he's an important figure because he you know, in any sort of thing like Savonarola, Savonarola is meow. Luther tries to hold it together, you know we're not going this far, we're only going this far, we're gonna try to stay right about here and ends up you know, not being killed as a result of his sort of uh, trying to hold it together views. He, he was a pragmatist in, in some ways. And so he is he's thinking about his, the kings, he's thinking about the people, he's thinking about the church, and he's, he's trying to hold it together. And, and, and that's really why the Lutheran Reformation really did catch, catch on and take hold. It's because Luther did kind of hold to a sort of a middle ground and did think about the bigger picture. Very, very important figure. He also married. In 1525, he married, he ends up having uh, six children. It's very rare, you know, Catholic priests were not supposed to marry. Part of the Reformation thinking, well, this is nuts. The Bible doesn't say you're not supposed to marry. So Luther married. The next figure we're going to look at is Jean Calvin. Calvin is brilliant. Calvin, where he differs from Luther and he's he's born 25 years later. As he's going to school in Paris, um, he's reading Luther's writings. He's influenced by Luther. In Paris, Calvin, whereas Luther was the son of a uh, copper miner, grew up in in just really kind of a rough, kind of a, you know, kind of an Archie Bunker kind of home, you know. Bop. Calvin, on the other hand, grows up in a more a- aristocratic family, and Calvin's father had worked his way up the church hierarchy and was the uh, stenographer for a uh, an important uh, bishop. Um, Calvin's father was a, a very church-wise, very uh, social-wise uh, person, and Calvin was raised with a nobility because of his uh, place in the church. Calvin is, is sent to the finest schools, and his father, interesting enough, to pay for um, Calvin's schooling, there are these church offices, and it's like, it's like, like government, and so the, because the church and the government are so intertwined, there are these various bureaucratic offices that are quasi-church, quasi-government offices. And, and basically, the way you get one of those offices is that somebody buys it for you. comes with a salary. And in fact, you don't even have to do anything. You, you hold the title, and you get the salary. Don't have to show up. And so his father bought two of them <laughs> for, for Calvin. And that was how Calvin went to school. It's because his father had saved up enough dough to buy basically an annuity annuity that that paid out an income to his son. And these things were for sale. Nice church, huh? So anyways, that was how Calvin went through school. So his father is pushing him to be an attorney. His father has kind of a falling out with the the bishop and then later dies. And Calvin is now free to uh, do what he wants. And what he wants is uh, he converts to Protestantism and he ends up writing a very, very important work called The Institutes. And he ends up refining this work over the course of his life. He writes this work called The Institutes that is a strong argument for Protestantism. And it's basically saying, here's how I see the word of God, here's how I see the Bible, here's how we should live. And so what's happening is that the, this Catholic government structure is so messed up, people like Luther and Calvin have got to start over really from scratch. Luther tries to reform Catholicism. Calvin on the other hand starts with a clean sheet of paper. Calvin goes right back to the Word of God. And in those days what it was called is it was called the school of humanism. And humanism was basically it's not the same that you would see it as today but it was it has that name of humanism but what it was was going back to the source. Let's go back to the original source back to the basics, back to the original source, who was the first, where is the first original document, and so Calvin takes it all the way back to the Bible, and everything that he does, and everything that, that he writes on, goes right back to the foundation of scripture. So Calvin, after writing the Institutes, uh, this book becomes fairly famous, and um, Calvin is on his way, Calvin just sees himself as, a, as an intellectual, he's kind of shy, he's he's meek he's he's not not a bold person he very wants to stay out of the limelight he's not flashy he's not showy and he um he's on the way to Strasbourg because he's now that he's a protestant he, he has to st- kind of stay away from france and he resigns he resigns his two church offices now that he's a protestant and uh, he's on his way to Strasbourg and he spends a night in geneva switzerland and a man named william farrell who had been working in Geneva for three years, somehow learns of Calvin's presence in the city and asks him to join the task of leading the Genevan church. And Calvin declines, explaining that all he wants to do is just be an intellectual and find a quiet refuge for study. But William Farrell, with characteristic zeal, thunders that Calvin's refusal to help in Geneva would only bring God's condemnation down on his head. (laughs) So, all right, all right, I'll be the leader of the church. And so Calvin, who's I think at, Calvin is only 28 years old at this time, begins to reorganize the Geneva church. And so Geneva has just declared itself a neutral uh, free um, place, a free city. And so there's, there's a Catholic faction, there's a Protestant faction, there's this sort of a, a real large uh, faction of just, just heathen, heathens. And so there's this great heathenist community there's a hedonistic community, and uh, there's a Catholic community, and there's a Protestant community. And Calvin comes in, and they're trying to, you know, now that we're not going to be a, a, a Catholic city-state anymore, we're going to be an independent city-state, how should we do this? And Calvin gets involved in, in uh, Geneva government for a little while, and eventually just makes himself odious to everybody and kind of gets thrown out. Well, then the four people who are kind of the leaders, each one of them, kind of uh, goes down in, in scandal, and eventually they pull Calvin back after two years from Strasbourg and say, come take over again, we, we like you, you're, you're actually better than the other guys, I know we threw you out, but come on back, we need your help, he comes back and he becomes the leader of the church, what's interesting is that Calvin, as the leader of the church, he's not the leader of the government, he's the leader of the church, But as he begins to reorganize from the ground up, from really just a white sheet of paper, he begins to set up this local government that voting groups, decisions are made on the local level, decisions are made by the congregation, and then there are higher-up communities and higher-up groups, and it's a representative form of government. They say that one of Calvin's greatest contributions to the world was representative government. Calvin, by organizing the church with representative government, John Knox is one of his students. John Knox uh, goes back to Scotland and starts the the Presbyterian church based on Calvin's models. And representative government, elected elected officials, are those ideas come over to America and form the American government. So very, very interesting stuff. Calvin only looked at Scripture, and much of his, although it is a white sheet of paper that he's writing from, it's very reactionary to the Catholic model, and so as a result he ends up with some very extreme views of predestination. Once saved, always saved. Only those who are predestined to salvation will ever get saved. If you weren't predestined to salvation, you you could be born and predestined to hell. It would be a bad spot, wouldn't it? you were just born, and, and you're, you're going straight to hell from your birth. And other people were going to get saved no matter what. He has this unconditional election, unconditional. It's interesting, but it's, it's goofy, um, his whole his theory. You, you can't help but get saved. If you're, if you're going to get saved, you can't help but get saved. You're just God's so sovereign that if, if you're going to get saved, you're going to get saved. And you don't have much to say about it. And if you're going to help, you, you couldn't get saved if you wanted to you're going to hell. You're, you're going one way or the other. And there was a guy named Jacobus Arminius, uh, Jacob Arminius, who kind of moderated that view. Well, let's, let's go over it. But so This is fascinating. Calvinism can be summed up with this acrostic tulip, T-U-L-I-P. T stands for total depravity in calvin's uh, system of theology human beings are so affected by the negative consequences of original sin that they are incapable of being righteous and are always and unchangeably sinful human freedom is totally enslaved by sin so we can only choose evil you know you're born in sin you're born under adam's sin and you stink okay so, and and really i mean you can make that argument and you know it's, it's hard not to unconditional election The U stands for unconditional election since human beings cannot choose for themselves They stink. God by his eternal decree has chosen or elected some to be counted as righteous without any conditions being placed on that election. L, limited atonement. The effects of the atonement by which God forgave sinful humanity are limited only to those whom he has chosen. I, irresistible grace. Limited atonement was L, I is irresistible grace. The grace that God extends to human beings to effect their election cannot be refused since it has been decreed by God and p perseverance of the saints since God has decreed the elect and they cannot resist grace they are unconditionally and eternally secure in that election so yeah. we have the let me let me read the antidote here real quick okay so for t total depravity let's see, here's the antidote human beings are sinful and without God incapable or deprived on their own being own of being righteous. However, they are not irredeemably sinful and can be transformed by God's grace. God's prevenient grace restores to humanity the freedom of will. Under unconditional election, Wesley and the the Arminians believe that God has chosen that all humanity be righteous by His grace, yet has called us to respond to that grace by exercising our God-restored human freedom as a condition of fulfilling that election. So, you have your old line Baptist church, and Baptists are really you know, straight down from Calvinism. But you got your old line Baptist church, and then you got your free will Baptist church. Free will Baptist church. Free will Baptist church basically makes this distinction between that and, and, and hardcore Calvinism. Unlimited atonement, the effects of the atonement are freely available to all those whom has chosen and includes all humanity, whosoever will. Again, it, it's, it's really the debate is largely on free will. God's grace is free and offered without merit. However, human beings have been granted freedom by God and can refuse His grace. Calvin says you, it's irresistible grace. Armenians say no. Anybody ever witnessed in Starbucks? <laughs> People could have a choice. They're either going with you or not. Right? But Calvin would say no. They're just, they were born to go to hell. Assurance and security is the final one. There is security in God's grace that allows the assurance of salvation. But that security is relate is in relation to continued faithfulness, we can still defiantly reject God. And and we believe that's true. Is it although somebody can be a Christian and, and follow God and be totally saved, if they choose to and want to and want to completely turn their back on God and walk away from God defiantly saying, No, 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 not because they're mentally ill, not because they're physically ill, they turn their back on God and st- keep that way, you can choose to go to hell if you want to. That's the differences between the Wesleyan foundation that we stand on and the hardcore Calvinism. Great class, this was important. This is why church history is so important. It's because where did some of these ideas come from? <laughs> and you gotta know when you're, when you're at a Presbyterian church and, and the guy there in the robes just says, everything will be all right, don't worry. God's got it all under control. Everything will be okay. It's all up to Him. It's not up to you. You had nothing to do with it. Keith Moore, one of my favorite favorite preachers, says, people lack no-fault religion. They just want to hear a man up there in flowing robes say, it's not your fault. (laughs) It's not your fault. Whatever happened, it was the will of God. Free will. Free will. When the drunk driver crosses the center median, he had free will to drink. He had free will to do something stupid. He had free will to get behind the, the wheel and cause a tragedy. And that's, that's where the devil gets to work in people's lives. People have the free will to choose between listening to the voice of, of God or listening to the voice of the devil.